This is Pauline Jennings, and you're listening to Musician Talk. This week, I get to talk about my first love of the stage, musical theater, with Eric E. Parrish, who teaches music and theater at Minnesota West Community and Technical College. Eric is currently pursuing his MFA in directing from Minnesota State University in Mankato and holds a Master of Music degree in vocal performance from the University of Northern Colorado and a bachelor's degree in music from Gustavus Adolphus College. A couple of his favorite roles on stage, among many, are Pirate King in Pirates of Benzance, Javert in Les Mis, The Beast in Beauty and the Beast, and his current role as Georges in La Cage a Faux performing this month with the Merlin Players at the Paradise for the Performing Arts in Faribault. This Musician Talk episode is different from most in that Eric and I, well, we just talk because, well, there was just so much to talk about. And because musical theater folk rarely have recordings of their work, it's all in the moment, just like the magic of musical theater. Well, it's time to find out about his musical journey. Let's talk with Eric Parrish. Welcome, Eric, to Musician Talk. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on. I... (laughs) Like, this is one of my passions, musical theater. I think I don't think I've talked to anybody on Musician Talk about that, so I'm really, really happy to have you here today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I, I love it, so we're we're in for a treat then for both of us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the audience. <laughs> exactly. Yay. Let's just start with your musical journey, as we do with everybody. How it started. When did you start singing? When did you start stepping on stage? I have been singing my whole life. I know it's cliche to say that, but I don't remember a time when I uh, wasn't singing. Um, my dad was the music teacher and the choir director in Medford High School for over 36 years. And my mom was the pianist at our church and forever, like as long as I've been alive. And so I took piano lessons from my mom and I like music was just a part of our household. It's very mm-hmm. ironic though, because my mom is very much like a child of the 60s and had you know was very into like John Denver and all and you know and all of that kind of like folk movement right and my my dad was born in 1940 and so his music taste was a lot more uh you know a little older a little more traditional um and so I this I have this eclectic knowledge of you know everything from Mama Cass to Nat King Cole to Bach to <laughs> church, you know, church music. And nice. so um, it, I never really understood anything about a genre until I started going into school and, and started, you know, studying more. To me, it was just all music and it was a way to express yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I played a dress up my mom's like dress with the you know necklace and earrings and going up we had a staircase in our house <laughs> that was right opposite the uh the picture window in our living room so I could, at nighttime if you turned all the lights on you could see yourself in the reflection of the glass of the picture window <laughs> as you went up and down the stairs and I was you know all things hello dolly 
No, Marilyn Monroe, everybody. <laughs> Doing the shows. One, I had one of those too. It was a, a landing in front of the fireplace that I would get up. I could see myself in the in the window, but it was where I would perform as a child. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I used to make my cousins like do all kinds of shows. And I was really, we had a dog and I was really into the circus at that time. And so, yeah, I made the dog learn how to jump through the hula hoop. And yeah, there was all kinds of, you know, <laughs> P.T. Barnum. I, my grandma used to tease me that I was a little P.T. Barnum. Oh, so that's fun. my dad also directed all the musicals at the high school in Medford. So I, I was on stage you know, helping him paint sets, running backstage. It was just a part of my life and it was a big deal. And the old Medford High School was a gymatorium. So it was a hole in the uh, wall at yes. the end of the gym. And terrible acoustics, so, you know, terrible acoustics. Yeah, yeah, terrible acoustics, you know, very like maybe 12 lights. <laughs> <laughs> and he did all the shows with two pianos and a bass player. And I still think today, like even... 30 years later, <laughs> the kind of how can I make this happen with the materials that I have, that attitude that I, I learned from my dad of, you know, there's no situation that you can't solve. You just got to think of it. You just have to be more creative. That time in my life was very influential in, in, in my career. And I can, yeah. I still hold on to that. And I think a lot of what I do, it comes from that kind of make theater or make art in the space that you have with the materials that you have with the people that you have. I love this whole idea of you make work what you have. It's such a powerful and great lesson to learn for everything in your life. You know, problem solving. Yeah, it came from this idea of seeing what you have in front of you. You know, we, I grew up on a farm outside of Medford and my dad used to, we used to go out to the woods, you know, and, and cut trees and chop firewood and things for our, we had a wood burning stove at our house and he always said it was important for me to observe what 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 I saw in the woods you know what does this say and what does that mean and how does this look and how does that interact and and so he was always teaching me about observing and the last show that he directed I was in I was a junior in high school we did into the woods and so that was kind of like this combination of him and I and our relationship and that's probably one of my favorite memories from high school theater um, was doing that show. When I left high school, I wanted to do both music and theater because again, I was a person that was like, this is, this is all one thing, right? It's not two things, (laughs) you know, because I had thought about going to the, uh, the Purpage school for the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, They wanted me to choose a music or theater track. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do both. And then I ended up at Indiana University in Bloomington um, in the School of Music. And I thought, I am, I've, I've made it. I've come from this little town, uh, from Medford of, you know, less than a thousand people. Yeah. And I've moved to Bloomington, uh, Indiana to the IU. I've got into like one of the best music schools in the, in the country. And I hated it. <laughs> oh, no. And I, it was awful and I cried a lot. And why was um, it awful? Why was it awful? What did you like? First off, uh, I, you know, the dorm was about the size of the town that I grew up in and I was not prepared for that. Okay. Got it. (laughs) And secondly, 
um, I was with a lot of musicians who had been formally studying music for a really long time. Not to say that I hadn't been, you know, I took piano lessons. I was taking voice lessons up at St. Olaf as a high school kid. And, um, you know, both of my parents were musicians. So I had a lot of, you know, training, but it, these kids were like, we're practicing 12 hours a day. They were like diehard kind of scheduled musicians. <laughs> And I wasn't there. I wasn't there because I was technical and I was practicing. I was there because I loved it. And that didn't really fit into the kind of academic situation, right? And I understand. <laughs> I understand I, what you're saying. And not to say that that's bad. And that school is more geared, I think, therefore, to grad students. And yeah. because of the the kind of the, the attention of technique and and I, I wasn't at that point yet. Understood. <laughs> and so um, also it was right at the same time when I was dealing kind of with coming out um, and my own sexual act and kind of discovering. And it was just a lot. Everything yes. was a it lot. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a and lot. And I went home for Christmas and I was like, please do not make me go back to that place. <laughs> oh. I hate it. It's so terrible. So I withdrew and it happened that um, my dad, you know, because he was involved with ACDA and, and music, he knew lots of, of the choir directors in Minnesota and things. And so um, Dr. Aonia Gustavus, who was the choir director at the time, they had offered me, you know, some scholarship money to go sing. And so we called them up and they worked their magic. And I was at Gustavus for spring semester of my oh, first year. Great. That is great. Yeah. That's great that, that that you got you got help instead of roadblocks, which a lot of people you know get when they do something like that. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and and it's definitely it was about my my privilege of you know yep. my dad and and things like that, and I acknowledge that. But Gustavus was a really great time because it was the an opportunity for me to figure out who I was at the pace that I needed it to be nice. right and, yeah. it, and I got to do both music and theater there um they don't have a combined degree but they um but I was able to to work in both departments and and learn um a lot from everyone oh that's there. great I was still in the closet so it was a little challenging <laughs> uh in terms of that um but the connections and the skills that I learned Davis, I'm still like when I'm teaching now I go oh that's what that's what Dr. Jorgensen meant oh that's what Dr. Gardner meant (laughs) like I have these little personal epiphanies Um, my junior year my parents were getting divorced and I was again kind of still coming to terms with my identity and so the one the summer between my junior and senior year I decided that I didn't want to go home Okay. Um, I just needed to get out of Dodge. Yes. So I ended up in, I ended up in Michigan at um, the Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp um, as a counselor and a teacher. Assistant. Um, and I got to meet Mindy Escheter. She's a Twin Cities musician. Um, her trio was one of the artists in residence there. And um, while I was working with them, 
Um, Rob Peebler and Alyssa Dieter was the trio. Alyssa Dieter worked at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and mm. she heard me sing and she's like, have you ever thought about taking your classical voice serious? And I was like, classical? Gross. That's <laughs> opera singing. Who does that? That's boring. You know? <laughs> right. Those operas, I was totally those operas like, are so boring. <laughs> yeah. Operas are boring. What are you talking about? You know? No, no. Like, I here I am with this huge basso profundo voice trying to sing Nat King Cole because that's what you know the matchup was. I was obsessed with Sinatra in high school, of course. Got it. And and uh, she's like, no, I think you should take your classical voice. Okay, so I came back to Gustavus my senior year, and I went to my voice teacher Michael Jorgensen, and I said, um, so I think I want to take my classical voice. And he just looked at me like, okay, <laughs> so. We kind of switched focus. Um, mm -hmm. I was doing a kind of a religion, theater, music combination thing wow. at Gustavus, <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> the beauty of small schools that you can you can do right. that kind of thing, right? So then we shift gears to kind of taking my my kind of traditional classical voice more seriously, and I auditioned for some grad schools that um, I thought. I would like and I didn't really anything happen um, right out of my first year out of Gustavus but um, so I had a, a year in between there where I ended up doing a lot of musical theater and um, ended up doing um, a show called the original Broadway swing which I was subbing the person they had gotten I don't remember if they got fired or if they were sick, but I ended up having to learn that whole show in like four or five days. Oh, and it no. was like 40. It's a review. So it's like 40 songs. Oh, no. Could you have yeah. words on stage? No, I bet you couldn't. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And there, there was added drama of an ex being in the chorus. And oh, so no. it was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But right while I was doing that I was also auditioning for grad school so I'm like going from singing swing to singing Mozart arias and I was like you can't swing Mozart you have to sing it straight on. <laughs> <laughs> all of this is to say that I ended up in the University of Northern Colorado for my master's degree in voice and um, working with Dr. Melissa Maldi and she worked a lot with kind of the Alexander technique and uh, about muscle relaxation. I have a lot of tension as a singer in my throat and my neck because I was a bass trying to sing music theater, right? Uh, and so I was yeah. I was pushing so much reaching. that I had built up all this tension and reaching. Mm. And so I was trying to find a teacher that would help me with that. And Dr. Maldi was an instrumental part of helping me figure out how to use my voice the way I use it now and, and in a healthy way. Yeah. And um, two things I would say about that for people who are listening and, and people who think they might want to, you know, college kids or high school kids. Number one, I, the best piece of advice I got about picking out a grad school was the grad school is there to serve you. You're not there to serve the grad school. So if the grad school wants to exploit you, you know, being a GA, being in choir, being, you know, doing all the, the things, that's not the place for you to hone your craft, right? right? Right. You need to find a teacher that you understand what they are saying to you and that they understand 
what your instrument is. And always pick that teacher experience over any kind of prestige, over any kind of you know program, scholarship money, because that the learning experience that you're going to do with that teacher is the whole point. <laughs> Got it. Right. Dr. Maldi worked with me. Actually, I'm featured in her book. She wrote a book called What Every Singer Needs to Know About Their Body and More. And I'm a case study oh, cool. uh, in, that, in that book. And then also they were hiring a new opera director, uh, Brian Clay Ludloff, who was openly gay. And as, as much as we kind of consider the performing arts to be a safe zone for people of the LGBT community, um, that isn't always the case uh, yeah. in the opera world. The opera mm-hmm. world is a very traditional place. Um, one of the research projects I was working on in my grad program currently, I'm in a second grad program right now, <laughs> uh, working on my MFA in directing theater. But one of the things that I'm interested in is dealing with the voice and casting. So, when we're, you know, we talk about transgender singers or uh, you know, non-binary singers, and as they go through the process of their tr- their change, you know, their voice is fluctuating. So then, right. their voice type no longer identifies with or matches up traditionally with their their visual appearance. Right? right, right. And so, how do we how do we in the performing world, in the casting world, in the directing world think about? that and how do we change that and and what can we change and what can't we change um and how do we redefine you know all of what we call gender normativity in in the performing arts right so this is a big fascinating subject for me (laughs) that is fascinating it's really fascinating and i bet you there's not a lot of people looking at that one of the topics i was writing on in my grad program right now is so often theater and opera and musical, any kind of performance deals with race in a dichotomy where it's us versus them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, there's not a lot of material in which it treats identity as a community, as race as a community. And, and that there are multi, you know, there are multi facets to, to that, to the interplay of, of different culture. And so often our, our art and our theater, um, really um and our music deals with it in as this one or the other thing and i think that's one of the things that music really has the advantage over other forms of art is that it allows for this integration of style i mean our american musical experience does this right right it's a integration of the blues and yeah yeah yeah. and i I think that this is why I love music, right? Going back to my original statement, it was never a, it was never a genre thing. It was like, oh, it's just a different way of expressing yourself, right? Exactly. And, that's exactly what came into my yeah. mind. We came all the way around. And that's a good place to transition into the next part of this interview. I would love to talk. We could talk for hours on all this stuff. Definitely. Yep, we could. Yes. And right now I want to move on to uh, musical theater. And I know that you teach theater and music. And yeah. then you also musical direct shows and you uh, act in shows and all those kinds of things. And I, I'm fascinated by musical theater. When I hear a musical theater song, I know it's musical theater. And so I'm curious to ask an expert of why. What is it about musical theater music? 
and I love it, that makes it a little different. The, the place to start this conversation is asking yourself, why is there a song in this play? <laughs> what is the point of us bur- bursting into song? It has to do with the idea that we can no longer express ourselves with just the dialogue, right? Cool. That we need to heighten the emotion of the situation. And we do that by bursting into song, right? Oh, I love that. I love and that. so if you come from it at that place, what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, first off, you have to remember that, that you're acting like you're you're telling a story through the way that you're using your voice and your body language. And that's a different approach, I think, than perhaps, you know, like an opera singer is more focused on the vocal production, right? And it's through compose and it's more about the musical style. So while it's, yes, it's theater, yes, it's acting, yes, it's expression, it's coming from a place of executing the music, you know, accurately. As opposed to telling the story so much as opposed to telling the story through your using your acting technique. And um, when I was uh, studying with Ben Crywaz up at Nautilus Music Company and the Wesley Balk Opera Institute, he has this great term called ubu. He calls it oops and ubu. (laughs) And oops is a mistake, right? But ubu is something that you're doing imperfectly on purpose. Ah. And Awesome. And musical theater does that, it allows your inflection, your enunciation, your dynamic, um, you know, all of those things. Perhaps you're not singing the rhythm exactly the way it is on the page, but you're doing that in order to draw emphasis to a particular word. Or, um, you know, sometimes you might shout a word or speak a word, or sometimes you might sing it more lyrically. People have made careers <laughs> off of their ability to do that. I mean, right. think of all the great, all the great divas that you know, right? Patti LuPone, Ethel Merman, um, you know, Bernadette Peters, my personal icon. Yeah, oh, uh, she's awesome. She is incredible. Yeah, you know, all those theater singers. When you think about their voice, they are not singing in a kind of you know a traditional classical sense. They're also not singing in a full kind of traditional recording studio pop sense right it's still full out voice but it's kind of broken up in a way right so that that kind of style of approach um to the acting I think is one of the things the other thing I was reading a really interesting book it's called a while ago it's called the sound of Broadway music and one of the things that they discuss in that book is how you can still tell it's a Broadway song, even when there's no singer. Like if you just listen to the accompaniment. Okay. When we had talked about what we might discuss in this interview, I was thinking about, okay, how do I explain this? And uh, orchestration is the deal. Okay? okay. So orchestration is, is deciding how a song is going to be executed in the theater. So often the, com- the composer will write the song, um, a dance and arranger and a vocal arranger will kind of lay out all the harmonies and things like that. But the orchestrator is going to come in and decide what instruments are playing what part and all of those, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And if you think about it like fashion, when you see something 
somebody dressed and you go, oh, that person's still living in the 90s or that person has got, you know, oh, that's a very 70s kind of thing. There are distinct like colors, shapes, uh, stylistic things, right? Yeah. That you associate yeah. in your brain with, you know, a certain time period. So orchestrations are basically doing that. What instruments are we picking to, to help tell this, going back to the storytelling, to help tell the story? Am I using a bass clarinet and that clarinet is helping me think about, you know, the big band era? Am I using uh, an electronic, you know, kind of drum beat mix and that helps me think about the 80s? So these choices of instrumentation, these choices of color and texture are are related to the storytelling, the time period, the, wow, you know, wow. the mood and things like that. All of that is informing what the lyrics are telling you, right? Right. As opposed to rock bands are great. Okay. You know, and if you listen to the Beatles, you got that four part Beatles sound, right? You yeah. know, it's the Beatles based on the instrumentation. You know, it's a rock band based on the way those instruments are functioning, the rhythm guitar, the lead guitar, the bass, the drum. So even like when Green Day did their musical of American Idiot, um, and they put that on stage, even though it's a rock-based musical, certain um, affectation, affectations to the orchestration is, is going to make it sound like theater music, even though it's a rock song. You know, Think about wow. the way you, when you first experienced Rent, right? It's very intensely a rock show, but it's still using theatricality in terms of its percussion, placement and it's voice you know the voice forward and the mixing it's not you know the voice is often a part of the texture in in singing but in theater it's pushed out in front so that you're following the plot and the story wow that was a great tutorial and i really appreciate (laughs) it and i think it's fascinating and how i mean how, how you can have only so many notes and only so many instruments out there and uh and the plethora of styles and and sounds that you can get from that and how you can manipulate all that via what you were just talking about to make certain sounds and certain emotions and all that is why I love music. I, you know, it's just glorious. It's just glorious. Um, And I, I think the orchestrator job is often overlooked. I mean, we think about, um, you know, the great musical theater composer, Steve Sondheim, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein and all those, all of those people were specifically working with one specific orchestrator. If you think about all the Broadway shows that you can, you know, eras, hundreds, right? If you think of a smaller group of about 200 composer teams, right? There's even a smaller group of about 40 orchestrators. And those 40 orchestrators were teaching the next generation of how to orchestrate. So part of the thing that we hear as the Broadway sound is just because there was such a few people that were doing it that oh, it, okay. it, it sure. hell had their impre- their kind of fingerprints on right. what they were doing. I did not know in, in, orchestrators existed. So to that point, yeah. that is, that is very fascinating. So usually we have the quote section here, but we've had so much stuff to talk about here that we've kind of run out of time. But um, I'm just going to I'm going to say it and we'll touch on it very briefly. But this is a Jerry Herman quote who um, who wrote uh, La Caja Faux, which is a show that you musical directing um, for the Merlin players down at Paradise Center for the Performing Arts here. We're going to 
give you more details on that in a second. But this quote by Jerry Herman is, I have a lot of friends who get up most mornings and go to jobs they absolutely hate. I don't think that's what life is about. And I'm so fortunate that I actually love what I do. And the reason I love this quote is because it's pretty, it's obvious on, on the, on the surface of, of what he's saying. But I, when you look at it a little deeper of how do you make that choice to do what you love as opposed to making money. And often that choice is made when you're talking about somebody going into the arts and you're somebody yes. who did that, you made that choice. Yeah. And you knew that even if you went into, if you went into performing or teaching, that's not something that you're going to ever bring home, bring home the big bucks, unless you are that 1% or whatever portion of a percent that makes it really big and actually has, a lot of money, you know? And, and so how do you make that decision? I mean, how did you? Well, when I was in grad school, um, I was, I was doing the Met Opera circuit auditions, you know, and I was trying all the programs and I was, you know, going to make an opportunity for myself. Right. I was trying everything I could. Mm. I was flying all over. It was very stressful. Um, as much as I love to sing, I I have gotten to the point where it's it stresses me out because I I want to be able to do it my best every time, mm-hmm. and that's often an unrealistic expectation for yourself, yeah. especially when you're performing eight shows a week or you're doing it you know like if you're working in the live theater, there's just so many other factors, right? Well, and that and also you can it. never, you can never get it perfect. It's the nature of the beast. I mean, yeah. you can always and do that's it better. Part of can, the, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. Um, Harvey Firestein, who wrote the book for Lacage, he, his title of his new memoir is called I was better last night. <laughs> I, I just love <laughs> exactly. that title. Yes. That's it, girl. Exactly. Um, but, um, so when I was in grad school, uh, my mom got cancer and so mm. I was wanting to move back to Minnesota and this this teaching opportunity kind of came to me out of the blue and it all just so it was like literally I was I didn't know what was next my lease was up in my apartment and it just kind of fell into my lap nice. and I was able to come back here and my voice teacher I said to her you know am I am I giving up my career <laughs> to to go teach and she said those university jobs are hard to get I would take it in a second and I said okay and so I moved um, back here uh, and I took this teaching job and I've been here for 15 years and I tried to keep going um, in terms of the you know auditions and, and making it happen it's just this this community is so remote it's about you know we're yes. about three hours from Minneapolis and so I've made some inroads with the Sioux Falls performing arts community. That's about nice. an hour away. Um, I do miss it. Um, but, and every time I do it, I always go, Oh yeah, I like this. Right. <laughs> you right. know? And so like right now we're doing Lacage au fall and this is a bucket list role for me. It's number two on my bucket list. Wow. And, and so, yeah, kind of tying it back to your, to your question you have to love it to do it and you will put up with a lot <laughs> yes. to do what you love if you really want to do it. But there are ways 
And I think that I have found a pretty good balance of being able to do to do both in terms of, you know, have a job and a career as a teacher uh, and still be able to direct and teach students um, and then having the time, you know, in the summer to, to, to go do performing gigs. It's a sacrifice for sure. I mean, yeah. my, my other half is always like, you're never home. <laughs> right. You know, it's hard. Dating a musician is hard. And every musician that I know has this struggle where musicians work when everyone else is relaxing. Right. right. Musicians work right. at night. So you're you're going to be entertained on the weekend. Musicians work on a holiday. So you have somewhere to take your fam. Like and and so you I think that's a an aspect you have to consider. You're going to miss a lot of things because you're the destination. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I think it's easier yeah. to be in a relationship with somebody who's in the performing um, arts or you know that perform than not because just for that reason of of you're working yeah. at the same time perhaps or if, if the other person isn't working they, at least they understand it your worst gig i have to hear about that okay and so, a best gig too at a best gig although i have some really favorite gigs i think probably the most exhilarating was my first time being a professional like making a professional opera debut and oh, yeah. you know singing with people from the met and houston grand opera and like oh, people wow. who were like big hitters and i'm like the peon who knew nothing and just held on for my dear life you know oh. i think this is a thing that people underestimate how much better other people who are better than you make you yes. right because you're riding the tidal wave of what they are doing and you just learn so much absolutely some of my favorite things that I've done are shows that I've directed where I just feel like there was just the synthesis of meaning and performance in the audience and it just really spoke to the to the moment Um, I'm specifically thinking about when we did South Pacific here at the high school in Worthington um, it was right during the DACA demonstrations Mm. and kids were walking out of school and they were going to get suspended for leaving the school and we had a show but we were doing the show south pacific which is about race it's essentially if you're that show and the kids were all worried and i said if you're going out on that street because you're supporting your friends then who cares about what we're doing in the theater right that's important and it's also the same thing that the message that we're giving in this show right if you're going out there to screw around because it's cool then i'm going to be crappy (laughs) <laughs> I thought they all were able to come and do the show and you know when we got to that moment in the second act where he sings you've got to be carefully taught you know um and it's just this this culmination of all of our work and the kids were all like right there and they're like oh. oh we get it this is more this is more than music this is more than theater this is more than extracurricular this is meaning that is alive and speaking to our community and uh, that to me was like one of the best moments of my career thus I far bet. maybe maybe even more important yeah. there well right with the kids and that are going out into the world here and they're learning this stuff i'm a big believer that you can't change the things that were in front of you you can only change the things that are behind you right and and affecting those kids and and helping them see the world in a new way in a new light is 
is a big moment for me. Yeah. You know, that's beautiful. That's important. Yeah. But my worst gig, <laughs> I'll tell you. Let's hear it. I was the body double for the beast in Beauty and the Beast. So in the professional production, the when the beast transforms back into the prince at the end of the show, from about the sequence from the fight with Gaston and the castle to when uh, Belle like kisses the beast or cries, I, I forget what the affect is, but you know, before the, the love happens, right? Right, right. That sequence, they use a body double so that the performer has a time, the time to switch back into the prince, right? Yeah. In the professional production, they raise you, they suspend you in the air and, and spin you. And then the other character comes down, right? The other actor as the prince, the real beast, right? Comes down and then the, the body double disappears. There's got to be some smoke well, that involved. Got, Oh yeah, there's flashing lights, smoke. (laughs) Right. There's Disney orchestrations and money. Uh, Right, 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 right. So I'm going up in the air, and uh, the the line something happened with the the ZFX that it drops me, (gasps) and I land on my shoulder, 16 feet onto the stage floor. Oh no! (laughs) And my shoulder just goes boom. Did you say this was during uh, a performance? Yeah, yeah, Matt oh. Day Day, of course. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that was a challenging. I've had lots of That's incidents with my shoulder in the opera. Um, you know, I had an incident with the turntable in Les Mis and Chauvert too during the fight. And my the turntable in my arm went one way and my body stayed on the stage floor. <laughs> oh, no. So it's more physical issues for you than the performance related, which is I guess is a good thing, except yeah. that you're getting injured. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's wrap up with talking about La Caja Faux, your musical director, and you're in it. Yes, I'm playing Alban Zaza, the the main yeah. star performer. Yep. Awesome. And this is a kind of a fun thing. So my friend Michael is playing George, the husband, and we, uh, the two of us did a year with Frog and Toad with Merlin Players, I don't know, a long time ago. And while we were doing that, we said, oh, wouldn't it be fun to play Georges and Alban? Because it's basically the same relationship as Frog and Toad. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're both openly gay. We both have long, you know, term partners. And, and I've known him for Michael for over 20 years. And so mm. Juliana Skazacek, the director and artistic director of Merlin Players, she was like, well, what's you left on your bucket list? I said, there are two things, La Caja and Sweeney Todd. So we called Michael and Michael's like, hey, do you want to do, do we want to do Lacage, Michael? He's like, okay, yeah. So yeah, back in, was it 2020, we were supposed to do it and, mm. and then it got shut down. Um, and so this Lacage is a big, is a big important role for me um, in terms of not only the theatrics and the singing, but also just personally as, you know, an openly gay performer and coming back. I grew up in Medford, as I said, and, you know, coming back to the Faribault Community Theater, that's, that's where I learned. I mean, I was in there at a very young age. And, and so this is kind of a big homecoming. And Michael is also from Faribault. He lives in St. Paul now. So it's, you know, he likes to say, the boys are back in town. (laughs) Nice. The boys are back in town and we can all go see them. We can all see you in this show. And the show is June 17th, 18th. Uh, 23rd 24th 25th 
at 7.30 p.m. and then on Sundays, the 19th and the 26th at 2 o'clock p.m. And you can get you can get tickets where? Paradise Center for the Arts.org uh, website. And um, you can also follow them, but I think it's best to get online. So. All right. If you're on Facebook and if, if you're a friend of mine if, uh, or go to my page and there's a link um, in my promo for this show uh, that will take you there as well. So we've done a lot of talking about this show in that you're coming out and that you're openly gay. And so it's an important character for you. So maybe we should just do a short synopsis of the show and why why it speaks to you. So Le Cajafo is based on a play called Le Cajafo by Jean Pierrot. Pierrot, I forget. If you're familiar with the movie The Birdcage with yes. Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. So the movie Birdcage is based on the same play as Le Cajafo is based. So they both have the same source material. So basically the setup is that Georges owns this club. Um, it's a kind of vaudeville, you know, burlesque kind of drag performing club on the French Riviera. And his partner, Zaza, uh, well, his partner is named Alban. His, this, his drag name is Zaza, is the star of this review. And Georges has a child from... Um, a previous relationship with a female and this child is wanting to get married. Um, so they bring, um, he's bringing his fiance to meet the parents, right? Yes. And Great setup. He's embarrassed. Yeah. He's embarrassed by uh, Zaza and all of that. So he tries to hide Zaza and, but then in the musical, um, <laughs> the, the mom doesn't show up. And so Zaza becomes mama. The the fiance, this this girlfriend's parents are are conservative politicians. Uh, uh, he's a politician. Yikes. It's just and the so, setup is getting better and better for mayhem and misunderstandings. Yes, <laughs> yes. you know mayhem and resolution. <laughs> right, right, and then and then, and things are learned, and it's it's so wonderful with comedy when you learn these important lessons, and yeah. um, but it doesn't hit you over the head with with it. It it does it with joy, and it does it with love. And it does it with that, joy and love. You know yes. the love story, the love story between Georges and and how it, what it sustains, what we know, what we learned, it has sustained, and what it is being asked to do, and you know the son Jean Michel he sees that there's this beautiful moment at the end of the show where right at that moment, Jean-Michel realizes that nothing else matters except the fact that he has these parents who are willing to do anything for him. And it's my favorite moment is I, cause I, I make eye contact with, with the actor's name is Nick and, and he sings a song and I get teary eyed every time. <laughs> cause it's a, it's just this, it's this moment of acceptance and this moment of acknowledgement that you, you hurt somebody and now you get it, you know, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment. And and for all of us to strive toward getting it, getting it for everybody that's out there, no matter, no matter their color or their ethnicity or their sexuality or their gender or, 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 or anybody that you consider other, if we could get people to a place of getting it, mm, how beautiful would that yes. be? And I think theater and music goes a long way toward, toward helping that. And so Absolutely. let's just end it there. Absolutely. 
we'll end it there except to say happy pride month and this is a great show to have on this month and we will see you at the theater thanks so much eric take care thank you Many thanks to Eric for the joyous and oh, so interesting conversation today. What a blessing it is for me to get to talk about musical theater. Woohoo! Thanks also and always to Wendy Norquist and to you for listening to Musician Talk on the One, KYMN. You have a terrific day. Music.